0: Everybody doing okay? Good. It's good to see you. So here's what we're going to do uh, today. I'm going to begin the sermon, and then right in the middle of the sermon, I'm going to introduce another sermon topic that I'm not going to complete, that you're going to have to complete on your own. And then I'm going to go back to the sermon, and I'm going to tell you something really bad about yourself, and then I'm not going to give you any steps on how to fix it. So that's what you have to look forward today. Welcome to church. I'm glad that you're here. You're going to learn a lot about me and a lot about uh, yourself today, I hope, Lord willing. Um, so last week, you know, Stephen asked us the question, if you, if you, so we're going to be Mark 14, by the way. So you can turn there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 14. Last week, Stephen asked us the question. Um, he said, what do you do when the strong person in your life becomes the weak one? And remember, he gave the example, if you weren't here, of his grandfather. And how he'd served as an example of strength all of his life, and he could look to him for that example. And but there was just something about it when he got sick and seeing him lying there in the hospital bed that they just kind of jarred him. Uh, he, he saw his grandfather weak in that moment, and he had to reckon with the fact that his grandfather may not have been as strong as he thought. And, and I wondered... You know, to myself, who is that in my life? Who is the, in the 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 strong man that has become weak? And repeatedly, over and over, as I thought about this, the the person that came to my mind was um, my father, my own dad. And uh, so, Dad, if you're at home watching this, I apologize for not warning you ahead of time that you were going to be my sermon illustration this morning. Um, but uh, I promise it's going to be good. So, all of my life growing up, my father was a very, very strong man, both in might and in character. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm. I'm the son of a dairy farmer and grew up milking cows and and working out on the farm. That was my childhood. And, uh, and, and, And I can remember with my own eyes seeing these amazing feats of strength that my dad would do. I saw him pick up a belligerent cow and set it in the trailer that it did not want to go in. And um, things like that over and over. And, and legend has it, because I was too young to remember, that um, me and my twin brother—I have a twin brother—we would balance on my dad's back uh, while he would do push-ups and doing claps in between each push-up. He's a very, very strong man, uh, both in physical, physically and in character. Um, but then something changed with my dad. He began to have these routine. Pains in his chest. And um, after some examinations, it was determined by doctors that his heart was not in good condition, and he had, in fact, had a couple of heart attacks um, that he had lived through. Uh, My father would go on after that doctor visit to have both a triple bypass open heart surgery and then a quadruple bypass open heart surgery falling right after that, and from that moment on, his physical strength diminished to where it's almost completely gone, and to this day, my father is no longer this, the physically strong man that I remember and that family lore had ingrained into my mind, but where his physical strength had diminished, his strength of character only grew from that point on. I can remember a time watching my father, writhing in agony on the couch, clutching his chest in pain. And I was scared. I was, I was nervous. I was worried about him. And so I, I had even thought about calling 911, but before I could even get to the phone, the phone rang itself. And so my father gets off the couch, and he goes to answer the phone, and it was my grandmother, apparently. She had needed help with something at her house. And so he puts his boots on, and then he leaves. And he's gone for about an hour, and he comes back home, and he retreats back to the couch in pain again. We take him to the doctor later that day, and come to find out, the doctor said, Mr. Sinclair, you survived the Widowmaker. And my grandmother tells us later that evening that she had no clue that anything was wrong with him the entire time. That's just the kind of man that my dad is, and he continued to display these these strengths of character over the years. Um, never once has he failed to help my wife and I whenever we uh, are moving. So uh, the first five years that my wife and I were married, uh, we moved five times. And, uh, and we, we never moved less than anywhere eight hours away from home. We've always been more than eight hours away from home. And every single time, no matter where we were, my dad always made the trip up to where we were. And he drove the moving truck for us. Even the 18 hours that it took for us to get from Lubbock, Texas, to here in New Lubbock in Ohio, and we never asked him to do it. He just showed up and did it, and he said, hey, I'm driving a moving truck, and I'm like, great, because it scares the living daylights out of me to drive something that big that far, and, um, but he would always do that for us, and he dotes on my daughters like no other grandfather. He's constantly sending them, having flowers delivered to the house and surprises and treats for them. Um, spoils them rotten whenever they go to his house. I mean, just completely undoing all the good habits that we try to instill in our children, uh, which is what all grandparents do, right? And so my, my children, they have a name for him. Lila and Clara, they call my father Sir. They don't call him papa or papa or grandpa or anything like that, any other conventional grandfatherly type name. They call him sir, and it started out as a joke. Right before Lila was born, she's the first grandchild, we were sitting around and we asked my parents, hey, what would y'all like to be called as grandparents? What would you like your, your grandparent name to be? And my dad stepped in and puffed out his chest. and said, well, they're going to call me sir. And uh, it started out as a joke, but it, it stuck. And so now my parents are sir and ma'am. And that's what Lila and Clara know uh, my my parents to be, is sir and ma'am. But it is a name that has come to truly encapsulate who my father is. He is a strong, strong man who is worthy to be called sir. And what I hope he knows and what I hope that you see is that strength is more of an intangible than it is something that you can put on display. Now, here's the mini sermon that I'm going to drop in here and let you finish For years, for my dad's entire life, he was known as a very strong man. And then there came a day where God inflicted him with something that took that away from him. His identity was fundamentally changed. He was no longer the strong man that everybody knew him to be. He was no longer the strong man that I knew him to be. But what that allowed to happen in his life is for other strengths that he had, this strength of character that was already there but was just latent underneath there to rise up. And so could it be at times in our lives where God sends something our way, something enters our life that attacks us, our identity, who we are, in such a fundamental way as to change us completely, but God's not trying to hurt us. He's just trying to let the things that are much more eternal, much more longer-lasting rise to the top. I don't know. But that's not what we're talking about today. We've got a lot of work to do here in Mark chapter 14. So look at our text. If you would please stand as we read God's word. We're in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You can be seated. So last week, Stephen asked us, what do you do when the strong person in your life becomes the weak one? And we saw how Jesus was tormented by what was about to come and how the man who had once been the strong leader had now been reduced to just a fearful, trembling servant begging God for a different faith than what he knew was to come. But when we look at the text this week, it flips that question around and points it toward us. What do we do when we find out that we are not as strong as we thought? But we are actually weak. What do you do when you are faced with the realization that you are not capable of living up to your own standards of godliness and strength and success? The disciples were faced with that question. After asking them to stay awake and pray for him, Jesus finds them asleep. And and what does Jesus say to them? Verse 37, he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, in the first half of this passage... Mark's emphasis is on Jesus' pleading with the Father, highlighting his fear, his trembling, his agony, his humanity. But in the second half here, Mark's emphasis shifts towards the disciples and their weaknesses. Not once in the rest of this passage is Jesus' pain referenced. Only the disciples' failures are discussed. That they don't obey Jesus and do what he asks. It's their humanity that is put on full display here. And Jesus tells them that although their spirits are willing, the problem is that their flesh is weak. And just moments earlier before this, Jesus told the disciples that they would all desert him. And then Peter chimes in, he says, no, Jesus, I will never desert you. In fact, I would die for you. And then the scriptures tell us that all of the disciples joined in with Peter in making that pledge to Jesus. But Jesus says, no, Peter. You're going to deny me three times before this day is done. You know what? You're all going to desert me. In fact, one of you is going to betray me. They were confronted. Excuse me. Yes, and so then the disciples thought that they were strong, you see. But here, when Jesus needed them most, he pled with them to stay awake and to pray for him. When Jesus needed them the most, they could not even manage to stay awake. They weren't as strong as they thought that they were. They were confronted by Jesus with their weakness. The Spirit is willing, Jesus said, but your flesh is weak. Now, for the sake of clarity, just some definitions I want to give you here. You have to understand that spirit is talking here not of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, but of the spirit of man. It's a term that is sometimes used synonymously with the heart or the will of man. And flesh is used to talk about the disciples' bodies, right, and their carnal, unspiritual instincts that it has. So when Jesus tells them that their spirit is willing but their flesh is weak, he is saying that he understands that they want to do what he asks of them, but that their bodies and their natural desires and instincts are taking control and preventing them from doing what they want. Now what's interesting here is that Jesus says that it's the strong thing about them that is weak. In this moment, the disciples' flesh is winning out over their spirit. Their carnal desires are stronger than their spiritual desires. But Jesus does not say, Your flesh is too strong and your spirit is too weak. He says, Your spirit is strong, but your flesh is weak. It's strange how he flips that around. And here's the point, though our flesh, meaning our natural desires, must be submitted to our spirit. Or our supernatural desires, or else we are not strong, we are weak. So, just for illustration's sake, imagine a company whose entry level employees are able to intimidate and influence the higher ranking managers above them to do their will rather than the will of the manager's superiors. That manager is a weak manager. With no backbone or conviction whatsoever, because he's able to be overpowered and manipulated by those underneath his leadership. Now, we would not look at that and say, oh, wow, that's a really healthy company culture. I think they're poised and set up for success we would say, no, this company is bound for failure because they are not being led properly. The same is true for us. Whenever our fleshly desires are stronger than our spiritual desires, we are incredibly weak and we are doomed for failure because we are not following the proper lead. This is the human condition that we find ourselves in over and over, is it not? Don't you find that your spiritual ambitions are so much higher than you're capable of carrying out? I mean, we truly do desire so much more for ourselves than we find ourselves actually engaging in. We really do desire to read the Bible and pray. But those desires are so quickly and easily fizzled out by our desire to scroll through Facebook or binge The Office on Netflix or tinker with something in the garage or just tend to something in the house. And after the fact, we feel genuine regret because we've not done the thing that our hearts genuinely desire to do. We were weak. We were not strong. And that pattern plays itself out over and over and over again. The Apostle Paul understood this cycle. And he talked about it in Romans chapter 7. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I do delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my body, Another law, waging war against the law of my mind, of my spirit, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in my body. You see the chaos that we believers live in here, don't you? I mean, I can't be the only one that resonates with the Apostle Paul here. This is the chaotic spiritual state of every single believer. We desire what we cannot attain, and we pursue what we do not want. Welcome to Christianity. Now listen, an important note to know about this. I'm talking about believers here. And what I mean by that is those who have truly repented and placed their faith in Christ. Those who have been genuinely converted and made alive by the Spirit of God. That is who Jesus was talking to whenever he made the statement to the disciples that their spirit was willing but their flesh was weak. And that's who I'm primarily addressing as well. Unbelievers, the scriptures tell us, don't even have a spirit that is alive. It's completely dead. And therefore, the only thing that animates an unbeliever are fleshly desires. They may take the form of seemingly spiritual desires. There are many unbelievers probably in this room and probably watching at home who had a desire to come attend or tune in and watch this service but they're doing so for completely unbiblical reasons and are doing so not out of a desire to be godly or to be obedient to Christ but another desire maybe to please a spouse or or maybe to cater into social pressure maybe just a desire to try to be a, a good person but none of those motivations are spiritual they are all fleshly well all you're doing is you're just moving for the sake of motion trying to convince yourself that you're making progress but you're not And it needs to be clear that what I'm talking about today is not at all a reality that is going to be felt by every single person in this room. I'm speaking about something that is unique only to the truly born again Christian. So if all of this today just flies right over your head and you have no clue what I'm talking about, I've tried not to use big words. I'm going to use another one here in a minute, so get ready. But you may need to stop and ask yourself, why is it that I'm not resonating with this? Maybe that's a clue of something. God's trying to get your attention. So, for the believer, a willing spirit accompanied by weak flesh causes us to experience attention that we will never live up to everything that we aspire to be. I mean, how many people in this room have sufficiently arrived at the spiritual state that they desire to be in? Nobody has arrived. Exactly. That's the point. And listen to me very carefully. We must understand that that will always be the case for us, this side of heaven. The tension that we feel when we understand that we will never truly become as righteous or as spiritual as we desire in this life is something that we must become familiar with. Now, I chose my wording very carefully there. The tension that I'm talking about is not something that we resign to or that we just give into. It's not something that should cause us to throw in the towel whenever it comes to growing in Christlikeness. It's not something that we become comfortable with. It's something that we grow accustomed to and familiar with. We live in it, we acknowledge it, and we embrace it as part of living in a fallen world. That tension is a lived and felt reality that we become familiar with. And if we don't reckon with the fact that our spiritual life will always be one of growth rather than arrival. then we set ourselves on a road to quick spiritual burnout. But the tension of this reality that we live in is also what makes it beautiful for us. Because our life this side of heaven will always be one of spiritual growth. There will always be more for us. We will never suck dry the well of godliness and spirituality that God has prepared for us, not now and not even in eternity. If you are a believer, then when you understand this truth, you are free from having to feel like you've achieved a certain status or arrived at a certain level. All you have to do is just press on, you're free. Now, another reason that we should become accustomed to this tension rather than acclimated to it is because if we let our guard down and resign ourselves to not growing in grace, then we will lose heart and we become lazy when it comes to spiritual matters. And then, according to Jesus, that makes us that much more susceptible to temptation which only makes matters worse. That's what Jesus says in verse 38. He says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus tells the disciples not to sleep, but to watch and pray. Now, the disciples had a pretty long day leading up to this. That day, they had left Bethany and marched into Jerusalem, right? And then they go up into the upper room. They have a big meal, a lot of carbs, a lot of bread, And then they hike right back out of Jerusalem up to this garden. There's a lot of physical exertion and and preparing going on. And add to that the emotional toll that the disciples had been through. Remember, Jesus told them he was going to die. Peter said, no, I'm going to die with you. He said, no, you're not. In fact, you're going to desert me. You're all going to desert me. One of you is going to betray me. The disciples had a lot going on physically and emotionally. They were tired, and so they slept Now listen, well-intentioned believers can easily fail to fulfill their calling by just merely giving in to various physical needs and urges that we have. For the disciples, it was the desire for sleep and rest that kept them from prayer. And therefore, when the temptation came, that is when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, they gave in and they fled. They deserted their Lord. That's what happens when you sleep through life rather than doing the hard work of fighting against your flesh. When you are a lazy Christian who does not put their flesh to death and you instead choose to do the easy thing and give in when you decide to sleep rather than to watch and pray. When you decide to eat rather than to fast. When you decide to engage in sexual immorality rather than wait for marriage and abstain. When you decide to gossip and spread rumors rather than remain silent. When you decide to play video games rather than read your Bible, when you decide to pour all of your energy into your work rather than devote yourself to your family, when you decide to live for the praise of man rather than the approval of God, then when the temptation comes, you will desert Jesus and flee towards sin rather than stand beside him and fight because you have always done the easy thing and your spiritual muscles have completely atrophied and made you weak. That's how much power you have whenever you sleep through the Christian life. None. When Jesus said the disciples had weak flesh, he was immediately talking about their weariness, their tiredness. And that is far too often our common excuse. We may not say it out loud, but it's what we feel in our heart and it's what we think. I'm just too tired to pray. I'm too tired to go to church this morning too tired to lead my family in devotions. I've had a long day. I'm too tired to read my Bible. I'm too tired to put any effort toward this. I've got too much work to do. I've got all these kids to watch. I've got so many responsibilities on my plate. I'm just, I'm just way too tired to do that. And if that is your constant excuse, then you may very well be a very busy and productive human being, but you are a very lazy and negligent Christian and you are a sitting duck for the devil when he comes to tempt you, you will turn tail and run, just like the disciples did. You will miss out on the greatest things you can experience in this life if you do not kill your spiritual laziness and bring your flesh in submission to your spirit. But the Apostle Paul offers us some encouragement. He encourages the weary. In Galatians 6, verse 9, he says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You can't give up. Don't give up, he says. If you give up, you will not reap the reward. And this is why I said that we must become familiar with and accustomed to that tension of realizing that we will be in this fight for the long haul. Because Paul says that in due season, we will reap the benefits of killing our sin and doing good. But that season may be so far off as to cause us to grow weary. But Paul says, don't stop. Don't stop. You miss out on so much. Don't stop. You have a strength available to you that not even your sin can overcome and quench if you will just ask God for it. But the problem is that so often we do let our sin and our failure keep us from relying on him we do let it keep us from running the race as if as if we've disqualified ourselves from it we remember all of our failures and the things that we've done and we just let it cause us to be stagnant in our walk with the lord we think that god is keeping tally of every single thing that we do and holding it over us but listen to what god says in hebrews chapter 10 verse 17 god says I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You see, we think that our biggest problem is that God is keeping track of every single mistake that we make, but that's not the case. The problem is that we do. Some of us have stood by defeat for far too long. and We've let it linger over us, bringing on shame and guilt And we carry around chained to our ankles, harvesting every ounce of power and desire that we have to live a life of godliness. Because every step forward, we just have to pull that baggage that we're carrying behind us. And our spirits are willing to do so, but our flesh is just weak. We want to do what is right, but we are unable to find the ability to do it. And I want you to know that if that's you, then you need to hear these words. That your sleepiness, your weariness, your tiredness, your fear and your trembling, your doubt that you can actually do what God asks of you. You know what Jesus' heart is towards you and all of that tension that you feel inside of you? It's sympathy. He sympathizes with you. He sympathizes with you because he knows what that feels like. He knows what that feeling is, what that tension is. He's felt it. And his heart towards you is one of compassion and kindness. One that wants to lend a helping hand and not a heavy one. Let me show you. The first thing you should notice back in our text is precisely what Jesus asked the disciples to do. Look in verse 32. He tells all of his disciples, sit here while I pray. Just sit. That's all. And then he asks Peter and James and John to accompany him just a bit further into the garden. And it's to those three that he confides in them. In verse 34, he says, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch. He doesn't ask them to pray. He just says, look, keep Watch. Remember, Judas is gone, and in the upper room, Jesus identified Judas as the one who would betray him. And so Jesus and the disciples are probably aware of what Judas is up to right now, and they know that some soldiers are probably going to come and arrest them any moment. And so he wants them to be aware of the approaching enemy. He has the well-being of the disciples in mind whenever he tells them, you just stay here and watch. He's thinking about them. And the disciples' willingness to accompany Jesus into the garden, knowing that the enemy is coming probably right around the corner, is further proof that Jesus knew that in their heart they wanted to do the right thing. They were just tired. Their flesh was causing them to fail. And then Jesus retreats to pray, and it says in verse 35 that he fell to the ground begging God to remove the cup of his wrath from him. And when he returns back to the disciples, look at what he says to them in verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation Jesus' advice to them was not for himself but for them even in his anguish and in his torment his heart for the disciples was one of care and compassion he wanted them to pray for themselves because Jesus knew all too well the temptation that was about to come his concern was for them they failed him but his heart was still tender towards them And then he makes a statement that we've been discussing. He says, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's speaking to the disciples here, and he is not rebuking them. He is encouraging them. He's saying, Listen, I know that you're tired. I know that your flesh is weak in this moment. I know you've had a long day, and you're weary, and you want nothing more than to just rest. But I also know your spirit. I know that you're willing I know your heart is willing to do what I ask. Jesus's words to the disciples are far from a rebuke. They are an encouragement to them. He returns a second time after going to pray and he finds them sipping again. But Mark tells us that no words were exchanged between them. And then Jesus goes back to pray and returns a third time. He says in verse 31, I'm sorry, 41, it is enough. The hour has come. Now, I don't usually like to get into the Greek because I'm just not a Greek scholar, um, but uh, if, if the, the Greek scholars that helped write the, my commentaries that I consulted are know what they're talking about, uh, then apparently this statement that Jesus makes to them, it is enough. Um, that's kind of a notoriously difficult statement to translate into English in a way that adequately captures what the original Greek intended to convey. And so essentially what Jesus is saying is not a rebuke as in, hey, enough of this. You guys have been sleeping. Enough. It's enough. It's not that. Instead, what Jesus is saying is, it has been enough time. As in the time has come. So he isn't rebuking them even here. He's warning them of what's to come. Hey, hey, I told you, stay and watch. It's time. It's time now. They're here. And then verse 43 tells us that immediately, as Jesus is speaking these words to them, the time has come. It is enough. The time has come. Then the army, Judas, and the legion of soldiers approach them. You know, I think we often misread this passage and think that since the disciples failed in their responsibilities, which Mark highlights for us, they did fail. But that we think that since they failed in their responsibilities, then everything that Jesus says to them is a rebuke to the disciples the entire time. But he's not. He never does rebuke them in this passage. He only ever cares for them despite their constant failures. Now, why does he do this? It's because he sympathizes with them. Listen, in this moment, Jesus himself is undergoing a very real and severe temptation. And all the emotive language is used in this passage is meant and intended to indicate that fact. Verse thirty-three says that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. He told the disciples, "My soul is very sorrowful, even to death." Mark tells us that as he went to God in prayer, he did so as he fell to the ground, begging God to deliver him from the agony that he was experiencing. And Luke's account of this scene tells us that Jesus was so distraught and under so much stress that he sweat drops of blood. This is a medical condition called hematidrosis, where the body undergoes such intense physical and emotional strain that the capillaries in your head literally burst and blood oozes from your pores. Jesus was under such intense stress. And Luke's account also tells us what motivated the disciples to sleep. Luke says that the disciples were sleeping because their eyes were heavy with sorrow. They were sorrowful. That's why they were sleeping. They were overcome with sorrow. So Jesus, experiencing great sorrow himself, understands the sorrow that the disciples are going through and that has exhausted them. And it's because he's experiencing their same bout of weakness, but he is overcoming it through prayer. And so he encourages them to pray. He does not rebuke them. He loves them. And he gives them the remedy for their weakness. Watch and pray. Pray that you do not enter into temptation. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this about Jesus. That He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are yet without sin. The author of Hebrews says we don't have a high, witness, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, Meaning that we do have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Just like he did with the disciples, Jesus does for us. He does not look at your flesh prevailing over your spirit in confusion, scratching his head, wondering why you can't get your act together. He understands exactly what you're going through because he's experienced the same temptation. He has fought the same fight. Yet, where we have failed over and over, he was successful, and that is the point of all of this. He asked the disciples to watch and pray for him, but he watched and prayed for them. And that's still the point today. When we forsake our duty to Christ, he intercedes for us. When we sleep instead of fight, Christ fights for us. We're supposed to reckon with our weakness and not run from it. You know, I think that probably the, 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 the secret to growth in the Christian life is found in, in knowing just how weak you actually are. Because it's then that you can acknowledge it to God, and in return, you can harness a power not of your own that will allow you to do incredible things. That's what Paul did. He acknowledged his weakness to God and asked for it to be removed. He pled with God, there is this thorn in my side that torments me day and night. God, would you please deliver me from this? I am not as effective as I could be with this. This is hindering my ministry. Would you deliver me? God says no. Paul says, would you deliver me? God says no. Paul says, would you deliver me? God says no. Three times. Three times. And he said, no, because God said to Paul, listen, it's through your weakness that I am going to make my power known. And the same is true for us. For the Christian, the most formative confession that we can make is that we are weak. And we are in need of a strength other than our own. And it will be granted to us. What a trade-off. We acknowledge how weak we are. And God says, wow, how wonderful. Here's a little bit of my power to keep you going. But also the inverse is true. I think the most dangerous state that a Christian can be in is one of ignorance about just how truly weak you really are. Because you never bring that to the Lord. You never experience his power. But our weakness does not scare Jesus away. In fact, it's what he naturally gravitates to. Remember, he's the physician who came for the sick and the weak and the feeble, not the ones who are well and have no need of help. And Jesus can say that with a straight face because he himself has been weak. He's been feeble. He's been tempted and tried, and he has never given in to sin. Jesus has felt the fullness of your pain and your sin and your struggle. Remember what we learned last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which tells us that when Jesus hung on the cross... He did not merely take on sin. It was not merely laid upon him. He became sin. All of the complete depravity and brokenness of man, he didn't simply feel it. He became it. He was imbued with it. Peter explains it this way. Surely he bore our sins in his body on the cross. In his body, his flesh. Now, if our Lord partook of all of the fallenness of humanity and in his body became everything that he was never meant to be, but everything that we are, then why would he not be able to understand what you're going through? Why would he not be able to understand your struggle and your fight? Why would he not be able to understand your weariness and your tired eyes? Jesus and the Father are united in such an intimate and close way that we consider them the exact same person. But when Jesus hung on the cross and bore the penalty for your sin, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a moment, the identity that Jesus had as being one with the Father for eternity past, that identity was taken away. He didn't feel at home in his body. He didn't feel secure in his identity. He didn't experience the harmony of rightly balanced and rightly ordered desires. He was broken. He was broken for you. And he was broken for me, for us. But the scripture says that that brokenness, that disconnect, that disharmony did not last forever. Because it was through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that Jesus exhausted the full power of sin. He removed it and thereby he reconciled all things to himself. He brought order to the chaos. He brought unity and cohesion to the world. Things that were once out of order and misaligned are now properly balanced and made right. Jesus Christ has been exactly where you are. He has felt the fullness of temptation that a willing spirit but a weak flesh bring. But now at this moment, he is alive and well on the other side of it. And he is inviting you to come to him. He's inviting you to leave behind your dysfunction, and your disorder, and to join him in his peace and restoration. And if you are exhausted, don't give up. Keep going. Keep running. He will give you the grace that you need to continue firm until the end. That's what he wants to do for you. St. Augustine captured this for us perfectly. In speaking to God, he cried out in a prayer, oh God, the twisted roads that I have walked but look you're here you're freeing us from our unhappy wandering you're setting us firmly on your track comforting us and saying run the race I'll carry you I'll carry you clear to the end and even at the end I'll carry you so if you're tired and exhausted if your spirit is willing but your flesh is weak, if you are tempted to just sleep through your Christian life, you should take solace in the fact that you have a Savior who will carry you when you can't take another step. And you should let him. It gives him no greater joy than to comfort his children and to put his strength and glory on display. And it brings us sinful, weak human beings whose flesh wins out over our spirit time and time again no greater honor and dignity than to be the vessels through which his power and glory are displayed in the world. A solution for all of us, no matter what your hurts, no matter what your haves, no matter what your hang-ups, no matter the nature of your struggles, the one choice that you have that will lead to your greatest joy, your greatest fulfillment, your greatest satisfaction is to stop and to rest, to ask Jesus to carry you. I told you that I was going to tell you what was wrong with you, but I wasn't going to give you any steps to do. There's no steps for you to take. Jesus took every single one of them. There's no beatings you need to give yourself. Jesus took every single bit of that. There's no shame or guilt that you need to carry around. Jesus consumed that for you. You just rest in his grace. You just admit your weakness, your feebleness. You just admit that you can't do it. And you come to him, as one preacher said, with empty hands of faith. Not trying to offer him anything in return for his power, but just saying, God, I have nothing. Would you help me? And he will fill them until they overflow. I want to close by reading to you a short poem. This poem was written by a woman. It says, Remain here and stay awake with me. This was your plea The burdens of eternity resting on thee. Heavy eyes closed serene while your heart was laden with grief. Alone to bear, swallowed up in sorrow, their sin you would carry tomorrow. Remain here and stay awake with me. The quest for our salvation around the corner as they gave into a deep, deep slumber. Face down, weighted by trouble, your heart undeterred, though the cup was bitter to drink, beating and beating. Behold, there is the tree. Remain here and stay awake with me. Your life set to do the Father's will, they resting quietly and still. Soon to hold thee, nails and iniquities. Never can we know the weight of that sorrow. Remain here and stay awake with me. Lord, here is my plea. You shouted, it is finished. I can trust in thee. Though we did not for you, O Lord, pray for me. Grieved and burdened, sorrow surrounds me. Hold my hand in this Gethsemane, though none held on to these. Bear of all earthly comfort, you endured this trouble for me. Remain here and stay awake with me. Your eyes won't veer off from me, interceding on my behalf. With the sun, I will last, I will last. You will remain here and stay awake with me. That poem was written just a few months ago by a woman who's um, her and her husband both just come off the tail end of a really long year of their their flesh constantly giving in to their spirits constantly winning over their spirit and they were weak and they were tired that woman is a pastor's wife and that pastor is the son of a dairy farmer who is a weak man, but who is all the stronger still. Let me pray for you. Father, the truth that you have shown us today in your word, we are unworthy. But Jesus is worthy. And so that is why you constantly remind us over and over again that it is okay for us to come to you with empty hands of faith. That it is okay to bring our brokenness before you, to bring our sorrow and our and our weakness, our fragility before you, and acknowledge it because God, your power, is then made known through us, and because Christ is worthy of being made much of you, made much of Him through us. God, I pray that we do not come before you expecting anything on our own merit, but only in the merits of Jesus. Father, for those of us that are tired, that are weary, that are just weak from wandering this long, long road, I pray, God, that you would give us all strength to finish running this race and to run it well, that we would not grow weary in doing good because we know that in due season we will reap a reward if we do not give up. God, just like you did with Paul, would you make your power known through our weakness? We are a bunch of weak people. And alone and together, we are not capable of doing everything that you've asked of us. We are not capable of us of rising to the ambitions that we have set for ourselves. But God, through the power of your spirit, through surrendering our flesh to our spirit and our spirit to your will, All of us together can accomplish something great for your name and for your glory. I pray that that would be the driving influence in our lives. That we would seek to make much of you. And God, that we would do so confidently knowing that we have an endless supply of strength and power available to us. That we don't have to drum up anything inside of us to make this happen. That, God, you have decided your purpose from the beginning and the end, and you will see it through to completion, and it is your church that you will use to do it. I pray for those of us that are prone to trying to work hard, for those of us that are prone to to, to want to try to earn this from you, people like myself, who quickly are put on paths of, of, of spiritual burnout. God, I pray that you would show us again and again at the heart of Jesus, is, it does not shirk away from us whenever we admit our failures to him. That it does not shy away from us whenever we, we come begging and asking and pleading for more help again and again because we have failed over and over. No, his heart sympathizes with ours. He wants to help us, not to hurt us. He wants to lead us and love us. He knows the full depths, even greater than we do, of the pain that we are experiencing. And that by his grace and the power that he provides, he will lead us out. And we will walk in greener pastures and we will rest beside even more still waters. We will know that you are a good shepherd. You've been so kind and gracious and good to us, Lord. We are unworthy, and we ask you, Lord, even as unworthy, weak sinners, would you come and let your power be made known through us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.